Uh, let's uh, pray, shall we, before we take a look at God's word. Father God, we thank you for your love for us and your grace towards us. As we come together uh, now to look at your word, we do pray that you speak to us and encourage us uh, and you challenge us uh, through this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, as you know, today's talk uh, is about our mission. That's the job I've been given, uh, to preach on why mission matters and to encourage you to go and do mission, uh, not just here, but particularly overseas in parts of the world that are much more desperate uh, for the gospel uh, than in Perth. Um, and although my focus today in doing this is Luke chapter 16, I just want to highlight three things from mission uh, that come from Luke chapter 14 and 15 uh, before I do that. Because there's a series of parables and teachings in those two chapters about mission that give some background for chapter 16. Uh, so firstly, in chapter 14, if you've got your Bible, you might want to flick over there to verse 15 to 24. We see that the goal and the outcome of mission is wonderful. Jesus makes a point that God has prepared an incredible banquet for his people at the end of the age and that he has sent his servants out into every street and alley to bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame to share in this great and wonderful feast. Immediately following that parable, we learn that serving in mission is costly, that becoming one of Jesus' servants, his disciples, his missionaries, involves carrying our cross, and leaving behind all of our self-focused ambitions, our hopes and our dreams. And then thirdly, immediately following this warning, that mission is costly, we read in chapter 15, that mission is rewarding, that it results in great rejoicing. Because in chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables about this great mission to invite people to his great banquet. He tells his disciples about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And each of these three parables focus on the great rejoicing in heaven that happens when one single person receives this invitation to God's great banquet, when they turn from their sins and when they're restored to God. So in chapter 14 and 15, we learn that though the work of mission is costly, it is wonderful work, and the reward of mission is great joy. So just having done that groundwork, let's look at the parable of the shrewd manager in chapter 16. Now, I think in this parable, Jesus is saying, knowing what you know about the great feast and about the great invitation and about the great rejoicing, how are you going to live your life? I remember as a kid reading this parable and being really puzzled by it. I couldn't work out why the master would commend his lazy servant, especially after he'd effectively ripped him off and cost him a fortune. And I couldn't work out how either the master or the manager could possibly be an example for God's people to follow. Neither of them came across to me as particularly virtuous. I mean, 
if we think back on that Bible reading for a second, there was this lazy and useless manager and his master told him he was going to lose his job because of that. The lazy manager then began to fret about how he was going to survive without a job. He probably figured he was never going to get another job in management because his reputation had gone before him. He's never done an honest day's work in his life. So he's got soft hands and weak muscles. So he's not going to get a low-paid job as a labourer. And the thought of begging on the side of the road absolutely terrified him. How embarrassing and humiliating, he thought. I could never do that. So we read in verse 4 that he carefully and shrewdly weighed up his situation. He rewrote the debts of his master's clients. He gave them massive discounts to the tune of 450 gallons of olive oil and 200 bushels of wheat. And he probably did the same with all of his other master's debtors. He knew that by doing this, these debtors were going to feel as though they owed him something and they'd be happy to return the favour when he was out of work. They'd probably give him a place to stay, uh, food, probably some kind of easy job. And I think this, this kind of practice makes sense uh, in, in the culture of the Middle East. This sort of culture which we, li we lived in for seven years often operates with that kind of sense of loyalty, of favour, of this exchange of gifts. Uh, in my experience living in the Middle East, uh, favours were easily done for others, but also easily remembered. A goodwill was stored up for when it might need to be called on. Even the simple act of cooking a neighbour a meal would always result in a meal being returned. It would always be the plate goes over with full of food and it comes back full of food and often with a bit extra. Why did that happen? I think partly because that's just what you did, but also partly so that the debt was repaid then and there, so that it wouldn't be called upon later in some other more complex form. This shrewd manager knew that by discounting the debts of his master's clients, he would be owed by them. And so he was cleverly setting up a very good future for himself. Now, if I was the master, I'd be pretty annoyed to learn that this huge loss in my future revenues occurred because of my manager's actions. And the master probably was pretty annoyed. But at the same time, he was able to commend the manager for his shrewdness. You see verse 8. The master commended the honest, dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. He commended him because he'd finally looked at his life situation and he'd prepared for his future. He used all of the resources that were available to him to do that. It's a bit like, I think, hearing about an incredible bank heist, one that involves great planning and skill. We might condemn the action, but we can at the same time appreciate or commend the great skill and the planning it took to pull it off. I think Jesus tells this story to illustrate how the people of this world act shrewdly according to their worldview. They try to maximise the resources they've got access to for personal gain 
in this present age. Because that's all they think there is. And they're good at it. And then Jesus uses this story of shrewdness as a lesson for the people of the light to learn from. He says in verse 8, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. And I think that's a stinging rebuke to the people of the light, isn't it? I think if we're to reflect on the message of the gospel, we would acknowledge that our future hope is not our retirement, but rather our future hope is this great banquet in the new creation that lasts for eternity. But for some reason, we don't always tend to plan for that. We can often plan more for our retirement or for our next house purchase or for this well-balanced and well-rounded life where we get a bit of everything but not too much of anything. Jesus is saying in this parable that that's just not shrewd. He's saying, you guys know that this age is passing away. So why not pour all of your effort into grabbing hold of what doesn't pass away? If you know that everything is passing away, why wouldn't you use all of the things of this world that do pass away, all of your time, all of your resources, all of your money, all of your intellect, all of your connections, in the wholehearted pursuit of the things that don't pass away. He spells it out in verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. In other words, Jesus is telling us to use all of the resources that are at our disposal in this world to make disciples. Use all the resources that are at our disposal in this world to find the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. Use all the resources available in this world to go into every street corner, every side alley, every field, every town and every city to get that invitation to the great banquet out there. And you know what? Every single person who receives this banquet invitation from our hand is going to be so thankful to us in the age to come. They are going to hug us and laugh with us and rejoice with us forever. And Jesus and all the angels in heaven will rejoice along with us. In verse 10, Jesus continues to hammer home his point that we should strive to be shrewd managers of God's resources. He says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? 
The challenge laid down here is, are we trustworthy? Are we servants of God who use the resources he's given us to shrewdly win souls, to seek and to save the lost? Are we good managers or are we foolish and short-sighted managers? Ask yourself if you are shrewd by the world's standards but foolish as a person of light. Ask yourself, where does the Great Commission sit on my radar of life? What do I do and how do I use my resources to invite people into the eternal banquet? I think the warning and the implication of verse 12 is that if we're not trustworthy with the resources God has given us, why should he share the fruits of eternity with us? Let me head towards the finishing line of this sermon by asking you, especially if you're younger than 21, to seriously consider Jesus' call to go to all the laneways and the alleys of the world to bring his invitation of eternal life. Now, I want to speak to those under 21 because they are best placed to do this. For those who go, will probably have to learn a new language, they have to get trained, they have to get equipped, and they'll have to be prepared for the long haul. In my experience, 90% or more of those who go overseas in gospel work are in their 20s. This means that if you don't set this trajectory in your teens or in your 20s, you'll probably never do it. Will you count the cost of mission and shrewdly pay it? You know, in seven years of overseas gospel work that I was part of, I didn't lead anyone to Jesus personally, despite sharing the gospel with many. In the whole of that country, when I left there, there was only one tiny group of Christians meeting together out of a population of 25 million. And that group was not the fruit of my work. But you know what? By God's grace, I received a Facebook message two weeks ago from an old missionary friend who worked with me in the Middle East. He's now living in Europe and he told me that he was recently present at the baptism of a man who shared his testimony. Uh, this man in his testimony told how he'd begun his journey of faith at an English school in a remote village in his home country in the Middle East. And when my old friend heard this man's story, he immediately realised that this was the school that I'd been part of. And so he connected us. I'd never shared the good news with that man, but this man said that in a small way we were the first step in his journey of faith, which led him to that baptism. And my missionary friend uh, called these kind of moments God's paychecks. You know what? That paycheck was worth more to me than all the money paychecks I've ever received in my whole life. It brought me more joy and delight than all the money that I've ever had. If that is the only fruit of seven years in the Middle East, 
I will never regret my time there. In fact, I know I will enjoy that fruit for all eternity. And I'll enjoy that man's friendship in the new creation forever. Mission rewards us with great joy. I'll tell you another story of a person from the same country. And not too long ago, I was in contact with a woman uh, from there on Zoom uh, doing an interview. And this is what she said about her journey of faith. She said she began a personal journey of seeking God sometime in her teens through listening to a Christian broadcast in it, uh, into the country that was played one night a week for half an hour on a Monday night. Uh, she'd hoped that a contact at this radio organisation would arrange for her to meet another Christian, but she ended up meeting one by chance. And I'm just going to read some of what she said uh, word for word. So it's a bit, the grammar's not perfect, but it's her words. I was just waiting that I would meet a foreigner through like, through, through this radio or maybe an Egyptian or whoever, anyone who would live in this country. But at that time, I actually lived in a neighbourhood that they knew a foreigner who actually lived in the capital. And it was nearby our house and she came to visit them. And we met and we talked about things and I thought, I thought that maybe I could ask her a few questions. And she was surprised that I would have this book. She'd had this book, uh, The Arabic, More Than a Carpenter, with her. And I'd got it through the radio. And we kept talking and she kept visiting me for, for sometimes for a year. Right, and it was very scary for me. It was very scary and risky. And I wasn't allowed to go out and, and was just at home. Anyway, when she left the country, she left me with, with the Bible. And she said, you should accept God. And God will be able to teach you. And then she told me about the notion of the Holy Spirit and everything. And I was there in my room again, locked. And I wasn't allowed out. And I just lost all hope in life. I really had... I'd gone to high school and I was a good reader, but I found those books very difficult to read the vocabulary. And of course, also all the concepts and things which are totally alien to people with Muslim background. So, but I couldn't. I was frustrated and I was crying. But then once I just felt like, why didn't you just pray to Jesus? And I was very scared. And I felt that this is going to destroy my life just to do that. And maybe God will punish me in a way. I don't know what I felt, but I thought that God would punish me in a horrible way if I did so. But then I took courage and I said, okay, let me just try it. And all of these things was going on in my room and people wouldn't really believe what happened. And all of these battles that I had and all that. But I was someone who used to be just locked by myself in a room. And I prayed. I started to read the Gospel of John and it was amazing how I could, I could just understand the Bible. And I experienced the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was really real, how he touched me and how I was in a wonderful journey with God, just reading the Bible and trying to understand how he gave me the understanding to hear the Gospel. And then start to read the other books and 
some of the concepts, and I kept listening to the radio also at night. And I could understand many things. And I prayed every night. And then God opened doors for me to just, you know, change my father's heart. I could go to the university after two years and I could meet also with other foreigners that I could pray with them in their houses. I guess I told you this story to encourage you that God is at work and to encourage you to be part of this kind of exciting work either here or overseas. Maybe you can be that person who supports the Christian radio broadcast into these countries. Maybe you can be that missionary overseas. Maybe you can be that single or married woman or man who goes to live in another country, who gives a Bible, who meets and prays with those whom God is calling. Jesus finishes this section of chapter 16 with, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Here Jesus is telling us to check our hearts. Who do you love? Sadly, I think many people don't do overseas gospel work because they're afraid of being without money, without security. Some don't go to Bible college and into church ministry for the same reason. I can't be poor, Lord. They love money. I had a chat to the principal of Trinity Theological College not too long ago, and he bemoaned the fact that many potential students were worried about job security and income in ministry. Frankly, these should not be things that we worry about. First and foremost, we should worry about whether we're serving God. And God will look after his servants. Be assured, if God dresses the wildflowers, if he feeds the birds, how much more will he provide for the needs of his dear children who are going about his business? Right now, consider who you serve. Who dictates your big decisions? Is it God or money? Do you rejoice more over one sinner who finds life or more over getting the degree or getting the house? Are the things that you value glorious in God's sight or are they detestable? Jesus, in his life and his death, for you and for me, has shown us how to live a life in this world that is shrewd and that honours God. And it involves laying down what perishes in order to invest in what doesn't perish. Let me encourage you today in prayer. Offer yourself to God for a lifetime of mission work. Take that step of faith. Offer your whole life to him, no matter where it might take you. Each of us should pray that every day, shouldn't we? Let's pray.
Father God, we know you are Lord. Lord God, we pray that you help us to live shrewd lives, wise lives. Father, we know the best of lives are the lives that are offered to you for your purposes and for your glory. Help us each day to lay down our lives and offer them to you. That you might lead us to serve you, whether it's here or overseas, in our current jobs, in our families, in our neighbourhoods, wherever it is, Lord God. We pray that we will offer ourselves to you fully for your eternal work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.